You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your podcast for in-depth discussions of national security law and the history that gives you the context you need for real understanding. National Security Law Today is brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, the editor of NSLT and a member of the committee staff. I'm joined by national security lawyers here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. NSLT has created a safe space for national security law nerds, and we hope you are one. We know it's kind of like the chess club, that debate team, or that wall in the gymnasium where you used to put your back during the school dances. And um, we are very happy that we're joined by, let's not fairly put, two national security law nerds today. Jamil Jaffer, who we've had on again um, recently. We're happy to have him back. He's got an incredible bio, as well as our really good friend Paul Rosenzweig of Red Branch Consulting, whose bio we will also include in the notes. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you being here tonight. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being having us here. Yep. All right, so let's get right into today's topic, which is kind of the hot topic. The White House wants a wall. President Trump has said that he must have a wall, he is not going to waver. He has explored recently um, using a national security emergency declaration. And on the other side, the Democrats say it's immoral. That is why we have a government shutdown as we're recording today. Now, Jamil, let's start. Let's start with a few of the statutes that would give the president uh, authority and any portions of the Constitution under Article 2, Section 2, I guess, what is, for example, the National Emergencies Act, and why did it get passed way back in 1976? Sure. Well, you know, the National Emergencies Act was actually an effort to pull back the president's authority when it came to national emergencies. The president um, had, prior to that, uh, declared a variety of national emergencies during the Korean War um, uh, and, and, and prior to that in, in a variety of circumstances. And so, uh, and then used a variety of statutes that, when an emergency was declared, uh, became available to the president and sometimes became available simply by the fact of declaring an emergency. If an emergency exists, then you have all these standby statutes that come into play. The National Emergencies Act was an effort to corral that authority and to sort of put some structure around it, uh, put some sort of conditions for declaring an emergency, although they're very minimal, right? The president largely has broadly way to make that call. Um, and then to say not all the statutes become immediately available, but you have to designate which statutes you intend to invoke. So it's not that you declare a national emergency and then all these standby statutes come into play like they would in the case of a declaration of war, but to constrain it somewhat. And so what you have now is a structure which, to be fair, gives the president a lot of leeway in deciding what constitutes a national emergency, and then a decision by the president what authorities he intends to use so that Congress, if it wants to, can pull back on it. There are provisions that allow Congress to uh, put in place uh, a, a, a sort of... Uh, decision to reject the emergency, right? Um, but of course, as we know from the line item veto cases um, and other cases from the Supreme Court, uh, for Congress to do that effectively, they're going to have to pass a joint resolution, which means it's subject to bicameralism and presentment, right? That means that they have to get both houses to pass it. They have to give to the president a sign. If he chooses to veto it, they have to be able to override that veto by a veto-proof majority in both houses. And that raises the question, can Congress really effectively constrain a state of a national emergency? The answer is, we haven't seen it yet today. Wow. So, so Elise, let me, let me jump in and just say, I think it's important to emphasize that last point that Jamil made, which is that 
Congress's lack of power in this area is almost by accident. In 1976, when they passed the National Emergencies Act, the idea of legislative vetoes was still alive and well, and dozens of statutes had them in it, such that, as, as originally contemplated, if the president said there was an emergency, Congress could, by a majority, say no uh, and, and reject that declaration. But then along came the Chada case that eliminated line-item veto, the uh, one-house legislative veto, and then the line-item veto cases, and it struck those provisions. So almost by accident, we've gotten to a place where a president's declaration of a national emergency can only be uh, overturned by essentially a veto-proof majority of both houses of Congress, which is not going to happen. No, it would not appear to be the case. It seems like everybody has their backs against the wall uh, right now, probably like some of us did at the high school dance in the gymnasium. Um, Nicole? So, in 1973, during hearings on this topic, Edward Corwin, who is a constitutional scholar, said that a national emergency denotes the existence of conditions suddenly intensifying the degree of existing danger to life or well-being beyond that which is accepted as normal. And then for a little bit more about, you know, what makes a national emergency, there was a CRS, a Congressional um, Research Service, Service. <laughs> almost lost that last one there, report that broke it down into four features. An emergency is sudden, unforeseen, it is dangerous and threatening to life and well-being, it requires immediate action that may not be possible under traditional rules, and also that it is defined as an emergency by the government. So in the past, we've seen presidents use their emergency powers to do things like turn out the National Guard, which can be really good when they're you know, sending them to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, or uh, helping facilitate the desegregation of public schools. But that's only one type of power that could be brought into play, and that's only one or two of the examples of a national emergency that we might face. Paul, I feel like we could see a real national emergency around something like a catastrophic cyber event. Is that something that you could well, expand on? Yes, well, we certainly could. I think, uh, I think it's important, by the way, before we talk about cyber particularly, to note that um, all of that commentary that you, you mentioned didn't actually make it into the bill, right? So all of that is legislative history, if you will, uh, that is intended to uh, cover um, uh, what the legislators intended by it. But as, as we've just been discussing, the actual declaration is uh, is not constrained in that way, and uh, and remains much more at the discretion of the president um, than uh, than we might like. Uh, the other thing that is worth noting is that um, that's not the only statute that governs uh, declarations of national emergencies. For example. I mean, you mentioned cyber, so let's let's talk about um, uh, Section 706 of the Communications Act, which was passed in, in the 1930s. And it says that a president may proclaim that there exists a threat of war or a state of public peril or disaster or other national emergency. Uh, and then if he deems it necessary in the interest of national security and defense, he may suspend or amend or sometimes he may see fit the rules or regulations relating to any station or device capable of emitting electromagnetic radiation within the jurisdiction of the United States. Now, I don't know about you, but I think computers emit electromagnetic
magnetic radiation. Last time and I so, checked. Uh, and and so, so read on its terms, this is a power of the president upon uh, a determination uh, that a national emergency or public peril exists uh, to take over uh, portions of the network. Um, and, of course, we can imagine um, some legitimate some, some legitimate instances in which that would be uh, perfectly understandable and, and very reasonable. Imagine, for example, um, a concerted effort by the Chinese to subvert the banking system or by the Russians uh, to subvert the electrical grid, leaving us uh, vulnerable. You might say that at that point it would be okay for the president to say, no, no. Uh, Cybercom, NSA, you got this, you figure this out uh, and, and, and protect the network. But given the floppiness of, um, of the language, one could also if, uh, imagine presidents exercising this authority in ways that are uh, not as uh, well thought of and not as, as conducive to, to approval. Can we talk for a second? Both of you, I'm going to ask about this. Um, there's been at least some debate publicly about something like an internet kill switch. If a number of networks, let's say large banking institutions that are essential to the U.S. economy because of their size, their girth, their holdings, if for some reason they are so um, catastrophically hit with a cyber event and uh, tracing down um, sort of the source of that and the tentacles that it may have into other systems, uh, could the president do something like an internet kill switch, just kill it. What are your thoughts, both of you? Well, I mean, I think I think Paul, you know, was raising this question about the ability of the uh, of the president under this this long-standing statute to take action with respect to cyber networks um, or uh, you know things that emit electromagnetic radiation. So I think that actually goes right to that point, right? I think that as Paul described it, there's very broad authority there um, uh, that might be used in sort of the internet kill switch manner. Now, I, I don't know that anybody. Um, thinks that might be a good idea, um, uh, whether that would be even effective uh, to address the concerns or actually have worse spillover effects. Um, um, but uh, but I suppose there's, uh, given what, what Paul just described um, in the Communications Act, I suppose there's some potential there. Now, it's worth noting, you know, uh, as Paul was talking about the various, uh, you know, types of emergencies that you might envision, that since the National Emergencies Act has been in place, um, it's been used 58 times, and it's been used at times not for sort of these very urgent things that we talked about earlier, but things like uh, prohibiting the importation of rough diamonds from Sierra Leone, right, or, um, you know, weapons of mass destruction proliferation. To be sure, an important issue, but a catastrophic, immediate, life-threatening emergency? Probably not, right? And so um, it's also been used in a variety of ways because there's another statute, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, that ties into NEA, right? And so IEPA, as it's called, is is used primarily to put sanctions on other nations for bad things they're doing, right? Um, whether it's China cyber or Iran uh, weapons proliferation or Iran terrorism support or whatever, Cuba human, human rights or the like, IEPA is the tool by which the U.S. government generally imposes sanctions, and that's always tied to the declaration of a national emergency. And so what you see in these 58 emergencies that have been declared, 31 of which, by the way, are still ongoing in the present day since 1979, including the emergency with respect to Iran, because our Iran sanctions uh, took place under that 1979 emergency, what you see is uh, that these emergencies are varied in many and continue on for a long time. And so, um, and they're not necessarily of the variety of, oh my God, immediate crisis, terrorist attacks, and 9-11, we need a national emergency. We had one of those, 
but there have been a lot of other ones since. And so, um, you know, the president has, as, as Paul described, a lot of leeway to make the call on what is a national emergency. Um, and then the question is, okay, well, what comes of that? And there are authorities that the president could use. You know, the Lawfare blog, um, uh, Margaret Taylor, who I used to work with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bobby Chesney, who's a great law professor at, at, at University of Texas, um, and, and the team there, Ben Winnis, the team at Lawfare, have laid out sort of the, the laws they might that might come into play if the president declares a national emergency on the border and wants to build the wall. How might he go after military construction funds or other military funds to potentially build this? And then what challenges there might be in place uh, to to that action if, in fact, somebody were to try and challenge that activity? Paul, I, I agree with everything Jamil said. Um, it, and what has struck me in in this discussion is that really the National Emergencies Act is is misnamed. If we were being honest about it, it would be the national presidential discretionary authority to waive certain laws uh, when he believes it essential act. Um, and so characterized, it really sweeps extremely broadly. Uh, it, it has obviously some uh, uh, sensible invocations like the Iran uh, uh, events of 1979. There was an emergency declared after 9-11. But it also seems to have become the the go-to, you know, uh, authority of last resort uh, or first resort of presidents who, who can't get their way with Congress. And and the presidential instinct to build a wall is really just uh, the most recent manifestation of it. I mean, to circle back to your fundamental question, Elise, I, I think it is completely legally uh, possible for a president to assert a public peril emergency and use that to uh, demand that, that private sector actors who run the backbone of the internet conform their conduct to what he thinks is essential to relieve that peril. And that might indeed involve shutting down the network. I think it would be uh, subject to immediate litigation. It would be a horrible decision. It's rotten policy, etc. But on, on the face of the statute, it's not an, a frivolous interpretation. Okay, so um, uh, lest we should leave the extreme edges of, hypo of hypothetical examples in this debate, uh, you know, Marco Rubio, I believe this week, raised an issue uh, or sort of posited an idea that at some point a Democratic president could declare a national emergency with respect to climate. Um, you know, given what the report has been uh, recently from the World Climate Group studying it, I forget what they're called. Um, that we're, you know, we're heading toward a real catastrophe with respect to climate. The polar vortex has split this morning, which may or may not be a manifestation of some uh, serious climate-related shift. Um, that said, I, I wonder, before we leave this sort of extreme discussion, could a president make such a declaration, and what would be the limits of his or her authority if such a declaration were made with respect to something as sort of broad as climate? Well, look, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, in a lot of ways, this is a problem, uh, as Paul's laid it out, of Congress's own making. They did not adopt any of these definitions that Nicole told us about um, into the statute. They basically gave the president open leeway to declare uh, what he or she thinks would be a national emergency. And in fact, presidents have done that, right? From rough diamonds to terrorist attacks to the Iranian hostage crisis, um, you know, to, to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. We have seen it all. Uh, maybe not as far as climate, maybe not as far as border walls and immigration, but 
dare I say, we're about to see potentially one and maybe in the next administration uh, the other. I mean, we, we've we seen an increasing drumbeat of uh, executive authority um, from uh, the Bush administration with the surveillance programs to the Obama administration ignoring Congress on the Iran nuclear deal and on, and on uh, the climate change treaty, right? And now the Trump administration potentially on on the border wall. This is not a new trend, right? This is an increasing a trend of, of, of executives asserting more authority under, to be fair, congressional uh, conditions of congressional sort of, you know, not malfeasance is the wrong word, congressional inaction, right? Uh, whether it, whether we're talking about war making, where Congress hasn't declared war and since 1945 and hasn't passed a new authorization of the use of military force since 9-11, right? Which there's a lot of debate about, right? Um, Congress has talked a lot about yes, it, but hasn't done anything. Um, and we've so, been in a con- armed conflict for, what, 18 years now? Yeah, and so you can't... No, look, it, it, the armed conflict certainly continues. We are certainly at war with al-Qaeda still to this day. But should Congress take some responsibility to do something? Of course they should. Does every member of Congress know that and talk about it? Sure. Have they done anything? No. Is that the president's fault? Of course not. It's Congress's fault. Does that mean they're going to get off the stick and do something? Who knows, right? But at the end of the day, you know, what you have to think about is, well, Congress could change this law tomorrow. If they're worried... If Marco Rubio is so worried about the declaration of climate as a national emergency, or the Democrats who now control the House are so worried about Donald Trump declaring the border wall an emergency, guess what? You can amend the statute. You can legislate. God forbid Congress actually legislates. And, you know, look, yes, they might fail. The House, Democrats know, I House, notice that fact, the fact that they can legislate, this seems completely absent from the popular debate. Yeah, because the they don't. Media. Because nobody expects Congress to actually do their job, right? We would rather <laughs> complain the president's using overusing his authority, or oh boy, we should run to the courts and have have the Supreme Court or the courts of appeals solve this problem for us. Nobody actually wants to hold Congress's feet to the fire and say, "Do your job, people. Pass some laws." And by the way, you have a Democrat majority in the House. If you lose the Senate, you can point at the Republican Senate. You get vetoed by the president, point to the president. But instead, everyone wants to say, oh, the president could declare national emergency. God forbid. You can change the law. Go do it. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen tomorrow. Uh, well, no, it, it, but it will happen a year from now. I mean, let's play this out. Let's assume that President Trump does declare a national emergency and re- reprogram military construction money to build a wall or reprogram disaster relief money to build a wall. Absolutely for sure... That just means that the fight next year will be over the rider in the appropriations bill for military construction, which says none of these funds may be reprogrammed using the National Emergency Declaration powers. So it may get us out of the box this year, but it will not, uh, it won't stop the fight, which is coming down in some ways to a legislative fight. I actually sort of think that there's, that you're, you're a little too unkind to Congress. Congress is trying to legislate right now. You know, the Democrats have passed one bill, the Senate has passed other bills. It's the, you know, it, it really is the inability to reach agreement that is the problem, not the inability to act. To circle back to your main question, Melissa, I think that there's absolutely no reason to think that a presidential declaration of a national emergency with, with respect to climate change would be inappropriate. I, just a couple of years ago, you know, uh, uh, members of, of the armed services we're briefing Congress on what a national security threat climate change was. So so it's eminently plausible. The interesting question would be what uh, subsequent authorities they would invoke to use. I mean, it, just declaring an emergency doesn't do much. What happens is you then say, and now I'm going to use the military construction authority to build a wall, or I'm going to use IEPA 
to um, put sanctions on somebody or I'm going to use the Communications Act to take over the Internet. And as far as I know, there's no second step there. There's no emergency environmental authority that would allow the president to invoke a national emergency and then shut down half of the uh, gas gasoline processing plants in the United States. At least, but I'm no expert. Maybe there are. Maybe one of our listeners will tell us I'm wrong. Right. And you guys both brought up very specific ways that Congress could try to limit the president's powers during a declaration of emergency, amending the legislature, amending the statute, um, putting in wording in the riders to prevent appropriations money from being spent specifically for the national emergency. Are there any other ways that Congress or possibly the courts would be able to challenge an emergency? What other legal avenues are there to confront these emergency powers? Well, certainly, um, you know, there's been discussion about whether somebody could litigate um, if the president declares an emergency and then spends the money, right? But it's had the, I think the declaration of emergency, you're not likely to win, and it's hard to imagine who might have standing against the declaration of emergency. But if he spends the money and starts building the wall, um, you know, there's a the question of who has standing, right? Legislative standing is almost impossible to get um, and hard to understand how it might work here. Um, taxpayer standing, similarly hard to get. But there are a lot of people whose land is going to need to be taken if we build, in fact, build this wall. And I think, um, again, I think it was either Margaret Taylor or, uh, or, or, um, or, uh, or Bobby, who, Bobby Chesney, who raised this on Lawfare. Um, but that is an interesting way to get standing. So now you've got some, some sort of, you know, landowners in Texas whose land is being taken to build the wall, right? And they bring a claim saying you can't, this, this taking is unlawful because the money being spent is being spent unlawfully. And then they go up to litigate. Now, the problem is... The law provides the president broad authority to declare an emergency and then broad authority to act in that emergency. So, again, we're right back around to if a court is doing its job right, to be fair, they probably uphold the president's action. Now, you know, you have willful courts, but at the end of the day, this probably is a problem for Congress to try to solve. And I might be being unkind to Congress. That's fair, um, you know, as Paul says. But, um, you know, people got to take responsibility here. And, and we're, yes, we are between $1.3 billion and 5.6, and that's the big debate. Oh, by the way, worth noting, all American government taxpayer dollars, not a single penny of that $1.3 billion or the 5.6 anybody's saying is coming from Mexico. So the whole notion that Mexico is going to pay for this wall, you know, I don't know, I don't know where, when they start paying taxes to the United States Treasury and start, start going in appropriations bills, but it ain't Mexico paying for this wall, at least, so... Uh, not today, because as we're recording, I think it's one day after the uh, revelations in the El Chapo trial, whether those are credible or not, that bribes were paid to high-level Mexican officials. So I suspect they're distracted right now from that. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. So let me let me just add one one quick thought, which is that um, uh, Jamil is completely right that in the normal course of events, uh, this kind of uh, national security emergency declaration would get extreme deference from the courts. Um, and... Uh, Jamil is, is also right that probably in the normal course of events, that would be the right answer, which is to say that the entire structure of our uh, uh, emergency response capability is to set down a bunch of rules and give the president uh, emergency waiver authorities, trusting in the president's uh, wisdom and discretion and um, uh, probity and not misusing that authority. Uh, the only thing that I would add is that we're sort of in a little bit of a different place right now. You know, this litigation, if it came about, would follow on the travel ban uh, where uh, the president won in the end uh, five to four in a case that he should have won nine to nothing. And only after losing 
you know, two rounds below. Uh, there's the steel tariff declaration calling it an international emergency and saying that Canada's national security threat, which is making its way slowly through the courts. There's just yesterday's census declaration that refused to defer to the president in that regard. Um, so I think one of the really interesting long-term things that is of interest to people who listen to this podcast is that uh, the uh, unusualness of the president's uses of his discretionary authority is engendering a, a, uh, a response from the judiciary that is eroding his discretion. And I would not be at all surprised if a national emergency discretion that was uh, uh, like the wall that we're talking about, that was pretty transparently intended to resolve a political problem and not a real emergency, might not actually fail in the courts. Who knows, though? Look, I think, I think Paul raises a really a good and important point, um, and one that I worry about, and, and one that, you know, I think that I worry that Paul is exactly right, that that is exactly how this may play out. Um, but then we have to look to the courts and say, look, you're not doing your job here. Your job is not to figure out what the right policy is because you think Donald Trump's policy is misguided. You think Congress should constrain the discretion of the executive, right? What courts should do if they're doing their job right is say, Congress, you go fix it. Mr. President, you go do the right thing. Not, oh, well, we don't like the way you came out. Even though you have the legal authority to do it and Congress is giving you that legal authority, well, we're going to go police it because that's our job, right? The Ninth Circuit did that in the travel ban case. The Fourth Circuit was teed up to do the same, um, and and it's not it's it's not lawful, um, and people ought not point to the Supreme Court and say, well, Supreme Court, it's a it's a conservative versus liberals thing. It's not. This is about the rule of law, and the rule of law says we have lawmakers. There are the members of Congress, and the president. They're not the courts. The courts are law interpreters and law appliers, and they ought to just stick with that job and do that job. And when they don't do that job, we get ourselves and the courts into trouble. Yes, and we've talked about this last time in the context of the ruling in Carpenter and why we have these conversations. There was some conversation uh, previously about just ju now Justice Kavanaugh's opinion with respect to the Consumer Financial Protection Board head um, that, you know, sort of looked a little bit like lawmaking at the time. Um, and even some criticism of Roe versus Wade going back saying, you know, it really wasn't anything but lawmaking and um, taking the, the your side of the debate out of it that, that in that way the opinion may therefore be flawed. Hey, take your point. Um, what do you see as sort of the next step in this whole debate? I mean, in a normal environment or in the environment that Paul has correctly described as abnormal? In a normal environment, you know, they'd make a deal, right? They'd, they'd come in at $2.5 right? They'd build some metal slats, you know, in some places. By the way, this is how the, the border wall debate played out last time. They did build some wall. The president's right. They did build some wall, not under his watch, to be clear. Um, but walls have been built, uh, partial walls and then slats and the like. Um, and they'd make the deal at some middle ground. But right now you've got you've got crazy in the White House saying, um, saying I won't do anything. I'm happy to keep the government shut down for two years. You got crazy on Capitol saying, great, keep it shut down for two years. We're going to dig our feet in the, you know, put our feet in the sand and, and put our, head, our heads in the sand like ostriches and just let, let everyone suffer, right? Now, at the end of the day, do cooler heads prevail and does common sense prevail? And um, does that mean the president comes to negotiate or does that mean that, that Democrats convince enough Republicans in the House and the Senate to go along with them and reopen the government? Maybe, but right now, it ain't looking good. No, you know, this might be a good time to deploy paper, scissors, rock. 
I, you know, seriously. I mean, it would be better than our current decision-making process. All right. Any parting words, fellas? It's a strange time we live in. Uh, <laughs> you know, That's the most sage it, it, thing it, right there. Yep. It, who would have thought we'd be debating the meaning of the 1976 National Emergency Act for use to build a wall between America and Mexico? Yeah, we are. Um, anyway, I just want to tell our listeners that bios for Jamil and Paul can be found in the notes to this podcast. Uh, we will also include hyperlinks to some recent interesting articles uh, from The Atlantic, uh, as well as the Congressional Research Service report. Um, we will also include some of the cases that have debated the declarations of national securities over the year of, of, of national emergencies over the years by presidents. Um, as well as the black letter law, the statutes that we've referred to today. We'll also hyperlink and take you back to our podcasts, and there were two of them on IEPA. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. But, fellas, most thank you so much for sitting down with us tonight. Paul, I hope you're happy in Costa Rica. We are um, in snow here, but we hope that you'll both circle back to us soon. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. You can find links to the Black Letter Law, as Elisa said, and you can always find more links to articles on today's topic on our website, as well as books to help you grow your understanding of this important and fast-moving area of law. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on our Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next week for National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.